to episode 3 of Out of Game. In today's episode, we'll discuss the elements of a game that make it fun, and review the classic worker placement game known as Kalos. This is your host Ryan, join me and Chris as we go Out of Game. Welcome to Out of Game, episode 3. Got an interesting show today for you. We're going to be talking about a topic that we've brought up multiple times, which is what makes a game fun. It's a more interesting topic than you'd think. This is something that's come up a few times. Just the mechanics of, of some of these games are very different, and yet they're all fun in different ways. So we're just going to kind of break down the different aspects of a game and what what are the things that makes a game fun. It's also somewhat subjective, too. What's right. fun for you might not be fun for me, but we'll go over all those uh, aspects. Yep, and then at the end, we're going to do a review of a game that is fun, which is Kalos by William Attia, one of our favorite games. I think it made both of our top tens. It did. It's a good game. It's it's one that lasts the test of time. We don't get tired of it, and I think that's a good uh, that's a good quality to have. It should make our list. You know, something that you can play often but not tire of it. Yeah, and this is a. It's I would call it a classic game. It's one of the one of the original popular European t- style games. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know who who all listens to this show, but uh, it's a game that I think everyone should try, even though the box art is. Horrible. <laughs> Could be the worst box art ever, but the game is really fun. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, so Chris, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what I like to call my magic number. Magic number. Okay, it's interesting. So the magic number, uh, you know how I'm kind of a nerd? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we know. <laughs> so I created a, a Google document that I keep statistics on the games that I currently have that are unplayed and I, I, I do these tal- I do a tally of how many games I own that I have not yet played and, and so then that I that number shifts and I share this I share this document out to the public but only I have the link for it right and I so I can access it from anywhere and just see my, my magic number whenever I want to but this number changes right well right I, I have to update it like if you buy a game it goes up but then if you play three then it goes down right and it's usually the other way around okay <laughs> Of course. So my number's been dropping since our last show. Why is that? Um, you playing a lot or are you buying less? N- uh, both. So I've been buying less, I would say, and playing more. Uh, so it's it's almost cre- crested below 30. 30? So <laughs> That's low? Yeah, it, it was almost up at oh 40. Gosh. It was up to like 38 or 39. And I was I was annoyed that it was so high because actually when I hit thirty it started to overwhelm me because I'm I have this problem where when I have a list I have like a checklist of, of things to do and I and I want to check off the games and and it was going up instead of down so I started getting mentally averse to buying games and I and I just needed to play more to, almost just to check games off the list. You're not obsessive at all. No. Not at all. So how can how can you have more than thirty games that you own that you haven't played? I have an answer for that. So I think a lot of the games I have are when I first got into the hobby, I bought I was buying games that now I don't know that I would buy them based on the reviews or 
but at the time I was following certain reviewers and I was just I had no idea about any game so I was kind of buying a lot at, at the beginning so I would say a, a decent chunk of those games are games that I've had for over a year that aren't as good as the newer games you know what my magic number is one I have one game that I haven't played yet Agricola? yeah <laughs> even though I kind of played it when we played uh, Caverna which is similar Mm-hmm. I don't. That doesn't count, though. I, I have a Grickle. I haven't played it, but I read the rules and I watched the YouTube, so I'm halfway there, maybe. Do you want to play it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but so my magic number is one. I'm curious, the the listeners, what their magic number would be according to that definition. How many games you own that you have not played yet? Yeah, and I and I have. So I have this sheet where I I not only put. I put I list every game that I buy, and then I put the date that I purchased it, and then I calculate how many days I've owned it. So it's aging. Yeah, yeah, and so like, and then I, I keep a tally of the total owned days, even though it really doesn't mean that much. It's just it's fun to see like big chunks go away when I play an older game. So so yeah, I have the magic number, and one one way I decided to to lower this number was was playing games solo, like by myself. How can you do that? That's what solo means. Oh. So there's some games that have a one player is actually on the box and they have rules for how to play it by yourself. Agricola is a game like that. You 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 just play it by yourself and then you write down your score and then you oh, you try to beat your score. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the old Mario Kart where you could have the ghost rider and then you try to beat your 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 best right. time. So so you've been doing that with these games in order to check them off your checklist? I started to, yeah. So one I did it with was... Um, That's it, very sad and demented. It is a little bit. <laughs> but but one game... Some games that are good for this, though, are cooperative games. Because cooperative games, there's a built-in me- mechanisms in the game to play against the game. Right. So it's not quite as bad as like just playing for a score. And <laughs> Right. <laughs> so I'm focusing on the cooperative ones. So wait, when you're playing a game solo... Are you enjoying it? Like, is it is it fun, or are are you just excited to check off that checkbox? It's it's a mix. It's still fun. Like, so I'll like spend like some time, like I'll go down to my game cave and I'll, I'll have fun just opening games that I've purchased recently and sorting them and stuff. Like, that's already fun to me. Mm-hmm. So actually playing a game should probably be more fun than than organizing a game. Right. That's Although true. with my OCD nature, it's probably about the, it's about the same. Thing. Yeah. Right, and checking the checkbox is probably about the same too. Checking the checkbox is a huge rush. <laughs> it, oh it's gosh. almost better than winning the game. Wow! Just, just like I'll go in and delete the whole row out of the spreadsheet, and I see the spreadsheet shrink. That's exciting. It is. <laughs> it's amazing. Do you hide the row, or do you delete? No, I delete it? it. So you don't have any record of that. That's fine. It's all I know that it was on there. Doesn't it bother you to know that you don't know the date that you played the game? No, because I don't want all this junk cluttering up my spreadsheet. <laughs> of course, it's got to be clean. It's got to be. Clean. I used to keep them on there and hide them, and then you're like filtering it, and it, yeah. I don't know. I just I just want to get it off there. Okay, fair yeah. enough. It's actually a good segue, unless you had more news, to what makes a game fun, because when you're playing the solo games, you do get a sense of, are you going to like this game? Is this a game you want to bring to one of the game nights? Is this something you would be proud enough to like share with everybody and say, you guys are going to like this? Mm-hmm. Versus, eh, I'm kind of disappointed with that, maybe stick it back on the shelf. So those factors that we're about to discuss about what makes a game fun are probably something you're thinking about when you're checking off your games. So let, let's break down what makes a game fun. Do you have how many like how many things would you say you have on your list? I have 
five things okay. that I've listed, but some of these are like combinations. They, they're related to each other, and some of them are actually negative things about a game that would make you not enjoy that enjoy the game. Okay. Um, it's a very like non-specific list. I have a couple very specific things, but then maybe a higher level guideline type things. So, you know, I think probably the first thing we should talk about with any game is randomness. Okay. Randomness is something that exists. The only game that I don't, I mean, there's maybe a couple that aren't random, like checkers and chess, because there's no dice or no cards or anything. But a lot of the games that we play, they have a sense of uh, randomness of some sort, whether it's dice, whether it's cards. Um, even even like a, a booster draft game like Seven Wonders has a level of randomness to it. You don't know what cards are going to be passed as people are drafting from that pack. So if you're going towards science, for example, th- those cards could be picked before you get it. That's that's randomness. You just don't know. Uh, but then some are, have a greater amount of randomness, like where you're rolling dice. Um, and then even among dice rolling games, some of those games are more random than others, like Alien Encounter Alien would be Frontiers. less random. Oh, sorry, Alien <laughs> Frontiers. That would be less random because there's so many things you can do with those numbers. There's a way to increase your amount of dice. There's a way to change the numbers. Games like um, Tokyo, King of Tokyo, uh, th- that's a dice rolling game where it's a little bit more random than the Alien game. But the, but it's you have a little bit of control. So there's a, there's a balance between what I call strategy and randomness. And strategy is actually a bad word. You know, actually, we should break down the difference between tactics and strategy later, a little bit later. But instead of strategy versus randomness, it's more how decision-making affects the game versus how randomness affects the game. It's like decision-making versus random. You know, what what are my choices and how do those affect the game versus chance affecting the game? Rolling a dice versus uh, placing a worker somewhere. So I think those are... that, that. Randomness is the big one. So I want to go back to something you mentioned about randomness because this has come up before. So when you say randomness, you're actually including decisions that other players make. Yeah. That so impact I've actually I broke down all the different ways of randomness. Okay. Well, let me let me just go through them because that's a really good point. First of all, randomness is not black or white. It's it's a, it's there's a gray area where you can be you can have something very random and something moderately random and then not random at all with like like chess would be not random at all in a game like war where it's <laughs> completely random right so there's there's gray area in between and for everybody to enjoy a game there's a sweet spot somewhere in there and it's probably different for everybody some people might enjoy more randomness uh, especially the less serious game players they they would like that and then you know the more serious uh, very competitive people would they they like a little bit less randomness. There was a game based on Lord of the Rings. It was a Lord of the Rings card game, and it was used the movie art in two thousand one through two thousand four. This is a CCG, right? It's a CCG. Okay. And they they made a really good game. The mechanics of it were fantastic. Uh, a few of us in our Wednesday group play used to play and. There, there wasn't like in Magic how you have the land problem, and quote unquote, it's the land problem, which is, it's a quintessential luck factor of Magic. Uh, they eliminated that, and it, it was I won't go into the details of the game, but it did a really good job, kind of minimizing the random nature of the game. So, 
I guess uh, the different kinds of randomness, one example would be the land and magic. That's a kind of randomness. Any, any sort of deck shuffling factor, there's, there's an element of randomness in there. Um, card dealing, where you're dealing cards out, mm-hmm. that's random. Uh, that that was a pirate game that we played at Nathan's. Libertalia. Yeah, that game we dealt cards out, I think, didn't we? And then you had to no, wait, you had to arrange them. Right. You, you didn't know what stack. everyone else would play. You didn't know what everybody would play. Right. So, d- dice, dice by itself is oh, Robo Rally. That's where they deal the cards out, right? Yes. You don't know what you're getting. Right. Yeah, Robo Rally is is really random. So so that that's an example where there's a lot of randomness to it. I'll get to that in a second. So you have, like, the land thing in Magic, dice, cards being dealt out, and then, what? to your point, things that other people do that are unexpected, is an el- there's an element of chance to that. And Kalos is an example where it's very minimally random, but I don't know where you're going to place your worker if I'm gearing toward a spot, and you just happen to pick that spot. Okay. And you might not even be first, but you go before I do, and it's just bad luck, you know. It's just luck. But I would, I would put that low on the scale. Like that's not a very random thing. Like you, you can't, you can't lose a game based on one instance of that happening. Where with a land problem, you could. Um, and then I brought up Seven Wonders too, where you're being passed the cards. You know, if I'm going for science, and then Sarah is also going for science. And she's taking all the green cards, and then maybe I'm taking some too, but she's got them more of them before the deck gets to me. I've just gotten kind of screwed by random chance that that happened. Granted, that's part of the game, but it is random. There's really no arguing that there's that element of chance there. So yes, to answer your question, things that other people do that directly affect you when it has an impact on the game that's significant... I would say that that counts as random chance. So, okay, so we're talking about what makes a game fun. We're right. talking about you're you're essentially saying that the more randomness there is, the less fun. No, I would say for every person, it's it's somewhere else on the scale. It's a scale. It's not a, a on or off thing. Everybody has a different sort of sweet spot that they enjoy, mm-hmm. where they like to live in that zone. And um, when they get outside of that zone, they'll still do it, but it's just not as fun. Like I'll, I, when my kids were little, I'd play war with them. You know, I'd play games like that. Uh, but that's completely random. It's not like interesting. <laughs> so, but other people might have different views. So there's really no right or wrong answer to it. Just that it exists is really the the non-arguable part. That there is random chance in games. And it's a matter of degree. How much is it? And for every person, it's different for what you prefer. Okay, so if I were to summarize what you're saying then, you're saying that what makes a game fun, per it's basically a, a per, per person, is the level of randomness has to match what that person is interested in. Yes, and by match, I would say it has to, they have to live in a range. It's, it's more like a range of okay. what their tolerance levels are. And the game is somewhere in that range. And if it if it happens to hit there, I'll give you an example. So King, uh, uh, King of Tokyo. King of Tokyo is a little too random for me. But I know that's a very popular game. A lot of people like it. A lot of people in our group really like it. I'll play the game. I enjoy it. I have fun. But at the end of the day, I don't feel like the choices I made had any 
had that much of a factor in whether I won or lost the game. Mm-hmm. There are games that I've won that I didn't think I had any business winning, and games that I lost that I didn't really understand why I lost right. because it just happened to be I didn't get the dice at the right time, I didn't get the right card, somebody else had really good card, and their card combined with their dice rolls really affected the game. That's not really a, ga- a game where you could say, yeah, I, I made a lot of choices during that game, and those choices directly affected the outcome. I'm not saying it's not a fun game, it's just not a game where your decisions mean a lot in the end result. So I kind of, I actually put this in a different category. So we're, we're kind of going into what I had as an, another thing that makes the game fun, which is strategic choices. Right, that, that's, that's the decision making. So Decisions you're, you're kind of coupling that with random. Right, it's randoms. kind of, the, it's the, on the other end of that coin. It's the other side of that, the same coin. So I think some games have both though. They so, do. So I'll give you an example, like a game like uh, Axis and Allies, just to go back mm-hmm. to an old, an old game. You know, you have the strategic choices of where you're moving. So there's choices, but the, the dice rolls are totally random. Right. You know, you're rolling against someone else. Alien Frontier. Right. That's a perfect example because you're the first thing you do is roll dice. And you you can there are such things as better rolls than others. You know, when you get the matches that's gonna help you. But there's also strategy. The decisions you make with those numbers are important and it's a very good balance in that game. And I think that's why we like it a lot. So so I think you're you personally don't like games where there's a lot of randomness, but there isn't really an element of strategic choices. Right, so there's really two things. One is, what makes a game fun in general, like for everybody? You know, that's an interesting topic. But then, like, for myself, mm-hmm. if we're talking about my preferences, yeah, I would say you're right. Uh, I enjoy games where the decisions I make have more of an impact on the game. Mm-hmm. And I like using Alien Frontier as a good example because we're we just played that game and we're pretty familiar with it. That's a that's in the sweet spot for me. I, I find that the it's got a nice element of chance, and there's other factors too that I have on my list that make a game fun that that also has that we'll get into also. But it really does a good job managing chance with strategy. Okay, so King of Tokyo, it, the fun thing about King of Tokyo is like trying to get a good roll. Like when we were at Gen Con, <laughs> but that. You can't try to get a good roll. You either have a good roll or you don't. Right, but it's fun when you get a good roll. There's some games that are like all strategy. You're not. You're never gonna have a moment where you like jump up and yell. Like that is fun. Like if you if you roll really good and you like you just jump up spontaneously and yell. You're obviously having fun playing that game. But the game is completely could be completely right. random. Well, the reason you're jumping up though is because you're you're hundred percent at the mercy of right. random chance. Right. So because random chance favored you in that moment, that's why you're celebrating. Right, but it was fun, though. It was fun, but there wasn't a... a, You're not going to go to sleep that night thinking, I I did such a good job in that game. But you're going to go to sleep thinking, it was awesome that I won that game. Yeah, I guess. I was really lucky. You know, like, I had had this happen to me at Gen Con. We played King of Tokyo, and, and Dave was, like, the clear winner the whole game. And then I rolled, like, five fists at the end and beat him. I was thinking about that all night. Actually, I, I, I would like that, too. I, yeah. Anytime you can beat Dave. Yeah, and it's not <laughs> it's that Dave's an amazing player. It's just great to beat him at things. It is. It's always good. Yeah, he, so, he deserves it. Yeah, he does. And in that case, I, I, would, I can't argue with you. Right. So, so I think maybe this is just an element in our group. Beating Dave is fun. <laughs> beating that Dave makes is the game fun. fun. <laughs> so, so I want to add an item that I have a feeling is going to be on your list in some form, which is I, I call it the level of engagement you have in the game. 
So I, I, at first I put something that made a game not fun was a game that's too long, but I actually don't think that's true. Because a game can be long, but if you're completely engaged in the game that whole time, then it's still fun. What isn't fun is if a game is long or short, it doesn't really matter, but there's huge chunks of time where you're just doing Idle time. nothing. Yeah. Not engaged at all. So I, I called it level of en- your level of engagement in the game. For right. me, personally, I don't think it has to be as high as you, but you, you want to be engaged at least when it's not your turn. Uh, you're interested enough to actually watch what's going on, to plan out, plan out your own strategy, uh, but you're interested in what other people are doing. And to segue off board games for a second, I think the perfect example of a game that's like this is a role-playing game where you're not always personally doing something with your character, but you could sit there for six hours, and assuming that you have a good GM and you know the players are interesting, mm-hmm. uh, you're following the story, you're completely engaged in what's happening, even if your character isn't necessarily doing something. Of course, it's fun when your character's doing something, right. but the game itself is fun no matter if you're physically doing something or not. Right, like Werewolf is another example, where those games can go on a really long time, and you might not be doing anything, but it's interesting. Right. You're engaged. I like the word you chose, the level of engagement. I had idle time mm-hmm. in my notes for, for, for the same topic, but it, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned your uh, OCD earlier when you were talking about your list. The ADHD really kicks in with this one, and I, I, the, the amount of fun I have just drops like I could be having a great time when I'm sitting there waiting and not engaged when my level of engagement goes down I I don't want to play the game anymore and I don't I I hesitant to even go back to the game in the future for fear that that'll happen again Mm -hmm. and that happens a lot with the co-op games like Camelot when there's a lot of um, you know discussion and things like that and people's minds move at different speeds too like I like to add color to a game like I'll get you know, a little immersive sometimes, and you know, the one time we were playing Shadows of Camelot, and I happened to be the um, the bad guy, the spy, the traitor, the traitor, and so I was kind of role playing what I was doing with the with the with the Excalibur when I, you know, <laughs> I'm taking my throat into the lake, and you know, just kind of get immersing myself in it because I need to keep the entertainment going mm-hmm. because it's getting stale when I'm just sitting around watching four people discuss their move, you know, mm-hmm. so. I agree. I think level of engagement is certainly a factor. So I want to go. Sorry, I want to go back a little bit to the um, strategic choices. Not so much talking about the the choices, I guess, but I think it's related to the strategy of the game. Is something that makes the game fun for me is when there's some sort of puzzle to figure out in the game. So this is one thing that we've talked about in the past that. one reason I like to play new games is because I like I love that moment that you have when you when you figure out mm-hmm. the game because some like the first half of a brand new game sometimes you, you just your brain is trying you're trying to wrap your your head around the game and you you don't really see how the pieces fit together and it's like this puzzle you have to put together and then you have this moment suddenly where everything clicks and you you, you kind of transition from try, from fighting the rules to actually playing the game. Mm-hmm where the rules are just now in the background, you understand them, and you can focus on the strategy of the game. Like, that that moment of you figuring that out... endorphin release. Yeah, it, it's happens. like a huge high for me yeah. when, when we're playing a game for the first time. So, I, 
playing new games, I think a lot of people that play new games probably have the same experience. There's definitely a subset of the gaming community that that's very important to, for sure. I know in our group we have a couple like that. Um, I know I'm, I don't really have that. I, you've explained it a lot, and, and I, I have a much better feel for it now, but I, I don't really have that same experience. You know, when, when I'm playing a game, it is cool when I figure out how to... Like, I remember even Kalos, and we were being taught... It's like, oh, I, 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 like it crystallized, sort of. Right. But I go right from that feeling to how do I, how do I win at this game? Right. How do I become successful with you know my pieces or, or you know how do I uh, navigate within the rules in order to do well in a competitive sense? And so I, I don't really stay on that moment for very long. Well, right, and I, I don't know that I do either, but I think this this thing that makes the game fun for me kind of transitions into the next thing which is this puzzle that you're trying to figure out you're not you're not gonna there's the puzzle of figuring out the rules and then there's the puzzle of the strategy and the puzzle of the strategy could be something that you don't figure out for until you've played the game multiple times like i love it when you when i leave a game and i'm still thinking about the game afterwards and how i want to get back and play the game again and try out, you know, the strategies that I start to figure out at the end. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, the throwaway game at the beginning, yeah, that part of it isn't quite as fun. Uh, because you're you're not strategizing for at least half the game most of the time. Right. So that second play and that third play, that fourth play of the game, uh, as you're figuring out the strategy, any game that gives you a strategy that takes a few games to figure out, I, I think that makes the game fun. Yeah, and the, and the wrestling with the rules is frustrating. I I never like that part of it. It's a necessary evil. You have to do that in order to to get over the hump and to start enjoying the game. And plus, you you know, you're trying it. You don't even know if you're going to like this game or not. Once you the game crystallizes and you figure out the puzzle, so to speak, of the rules, then the game is fun for me. And as you said, at that point, it's a matter of uncovering the puzzle of becoming successful in the game. Right. You know, good game strategy and things like that. So yeah, that that that's definitely a factor. But I think that doesn't apply to all games. I think some games are more than others. The more complex games like Kalos and uh, Alien Frontiers, games like that for sure. But you know, like uh, like King of Tokyo, for example, we use that again. It's King of Tokyo. It's a little bit like it's a little bit like a ham sandwich. It's you know you're hungry and you have it. You're gonna enjoy it. But if you there's other choices there, you might not choose that one. The that ham one? sandwich should be a monster in that game. <laughs> it should be. <laughs> you know what we should do is come up with sandwiches to symbolize all the games. Okay. You know, like. Um, like Kalis, Kalis is like a pepperoni pizza. Kalis, you know, it's you've got your sauce, you've got your mozzarella, you've got your thin crust, you've got all the different pieces on there. You enjoy it, you know you're going to enjoy it, but it's a different experience every time. And when you're done with it, you want more. Okay. You know, that's well, just off the top of my head. Maybe would, sometime we'll come up with uh, an analogy. What would that. Alien Frontiers be? Oh man, Alien Frontiers. That would be like a Subway $5 footlong. Oh, man. Don't say Subway. You just, you're just you ruining Alien Frontiers. What's wrong with Subway? You need to re- retract that. Well, what's... Immediately I, retract it. A ham sandwich isn't the best sandwich Don't either. say Subway. Well, <laughs> you just compared my favorite that? game to Subway. I, I, spent a whole, <laughs> I spent a whole evening one time... Radio edit. From Subway. Okay. From, from food poisoning. And you just compared that to my favorite game. You need to retract that was it. One retract instance. it. 
Okay. We need a new food. It's a Quiznos toasted sub. All How right. about that? That's a little better. Okay. Ugh, uh, Subway. <laughs> I think you just dropped the game out of my top ten. <laughs> Didn't you have the same problem with Chipotle, too? That was, a, that was something different. Yeah, but you still eat there. It took me two years to recover from, from that. Okay. And well, I, let's, we, let's not slam all of these uh, <laughs> places, but... Yeah, so you've got, you know, Alien Frontier, you have your, your mayo, your mustard on the sandwich, you got like your turkey meat, your provolone, your oil, your vinegar, your oregano. It's good when you eat it, but the bread starts getting stale if you don't eat it fast enough. That's why the game runs along pretty quickly, and if you try to put it in the fridge, because you have oil and vinegar on there, it's not going to keep. So it's not going to be as good. You can't pause that game. you got to keep going. But when you're done... When you're done playing it, you feel good about what you just did. Feel satisfied. You feel satisfied, and when you get hungrier again, you're gonna want this. No regrets. Yeah. No, no remorse. It's delicious. Wow, I can't believe you just said Subway. <laughs> Man, I didn't know there was an issue there. <laughs> well, back to let's get back to King of Tokyo being a ham sandwich. Okay. So, King of Tokyo is. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the point was, but it. I don't look at that as a game that if you have a, if you have a whole table filled with games and you're with your your buddies and you're like, okay, what which we what game should we play next? You're not gonna pass up games like Kalis, like Alien Frontiers for King of Tokyo unless there's a time there's like a right. small window of time and you know that's why it's a ham sandwich. The fact that the game is decent but not stupendous that's what i mean by ham sandwich okay so not to offend the king of tokyo well i think it's a good analogy because most people call king of tokyo a filler game right it's it's there to fill time a ham sandwich is there like you have nothing to eat really right it's you know you still kind of enjoy it but you you're just eating it because there's there aren't a lot of options it's a lack of options yeah yeah but but while you're playing that game though it is fun for what it is but if that game went like an hour long, it would it would overstay its welcome. Yeah, it's perfect for like a half hour of just not not really having to think too much and just trying to mess with people. I can only take King of Tokyo in small doses. Yeah, for sure. One or two games is about all I can do with that. Yeah, and I think that's that's pretty standard. It is. It could be. It's a good family game too, though. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could play that game with with kids. But you'll find that. Back to our point about luck and randomness. Most games of luck are family, good family games. You know, right. the, the high strategy, high how your choices affect the game. Th- those games are not so much, you know, games you play with your family. So, games like King of Tokyo. I, I use Robo Rally as an example. To me, Robo Rally is the most random game I've played probably in a decade, <laughs> where you've got first the cards are being dealt. You know, you have no. You, you don't know what you're getting, but then as you're placing your cards and figuring out which ways your robots go, the game is very much built on how the robots interact with each other. And there's no way you know what that's going to be. There's no way to really plan for that. You can't predict what other robots are going to do. They don't even know half the time because they're being bumped by other robots. So it's completely random, that game. There's I, I have to disagree a little bit here because there you have some control over over your robot because you're playing the cards for your robot's own movement. Now that could get messed up by other robots, but there's at least the strategy of if no robots get in my way, 
of where do I put my cards to make sure I can complete my moves. Yeah, but what percentage of time does that happen? Well, usually for the person who wins, it's 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 very little. What does that tell you? That when you don't have other robots interfering, then you have more control over the game and you have a better chance of winning versus the other people who, by chance, their robots or moves are affected by other people. They have a less of a chance of winning. Right. I think, I think my point is the game would be completely random if not only were other people messing with you, but you had no choice on your movement cards. Then it would be completely random. Right. Well, it's not completely random, but it's just the most random. It's okay. the most random you can be without being called war. <laughs> because in war, you have no choice. In this, you have some choice, but there's really no difference on who wins Robo Rally versus if everybody just rolls a six-sided die and have the highest number win. Would that be more fun for you? No. Well, actually, it might be because you'd be over with quicker. <laughs> <laughs> I think rolling the die would probably be more fun yeah, for you. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Robo rally, it's it's like being dragged along for the ride. You know, you really don't have any choice as to what's happening. Like you said, you win if you're not affected by the robots, but you have no control over that. So you win, you have no control over whether you win. The reason we were talking about King of Tokyo is because I was talking about how you can refine your strategy over over time for some games, which makes them fun. And you were saying how King of Tokyo isn't like that. So. There is another side to this whole figuring out a strategy thing, though, that I think could make a game not fun. And that is when you discover through playing a game, through repeated plays, that there's a broken strategy in the game. A strategy that if, if you do the strategy, you'll win every time. Right. And there's a couple of games that are fairly popular where this has been discovered and people have shared the strategy online, and it, and it kind of ruined the game for a lot of people. And, you know, I think that in order for a game to be fun, for me, it has to have more than one valid strategy. for More than one way to win. Right. And this is the reason I like Caverna. I think I mentioned this before. Mm -hmm. Is because there's definitely more than one way to win in that game. Yeah, there's about 900. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, So I think, you know, there is the refining of strategies, but it's more fun if... You can win with one strategy, or if someone's doing that, you can try another strategy, and you still have a chance of winning. Right. Even like Settlers of Catan has more than one way to get victory points. Right. So you can, based on the way things are going in that game, you can adapt your strategy to you know build the longest road and the biggest army or whatever. And uh, games like uh, Kalos, you could choose to not build the castle like Dave did. Uh, you could choose to just hurt other people mm-hmm. in the game you know there's different ways to do that obviously Caverna there's a thousand ways to win that game so yeah I agree I think if one, if there's only one way to win yeah it's it's limiting and how much fun are you going to have over time with a game like that right and then another something that kind of goes hand in hand with this is not just that the strategies vary but I actually like when the game setup itself differs from game to game and actually, and, well, Alien Frontiers does have this because the cards are different every time. So my favorite game, you know, every game you play, there's different cards. That's true. So it's a different experience. Settlers of Catan, the, the the layout of the tiles is different every time. Now, a game like Caverna actually doesn't have this. It's actually something they changed from Agricola to Caverna. Caverna, everything is out in front of you from the beginning of the game. You can see all the tiles you can buy. 
Now your own strategy will be different based on which things you buy, but you have the same options every single game. Uh, but Agricola, you're you're given a random hand of cards every every time, and there's three different decks. So you, not only do you pick a certain deck for each game, but from that deck you only get seven minor improvements and seven occupations, and the deck is probably like 60 cards. So there's tons of variability in in that game. Yeah. It's a good one. I, I hadn't considered that, but it's one of the best things about Catan is the way that the board is different every time. Right. I mean, that if it didn't have that, it would be a, a lot less fun. I think when there's um, uh, like new game board generation, or I don't know how you would term that, it certainly spices the game up. And it allows you to keep playing it for longer. It has longer uh, lasting time, you know, enjoyment. Right. You know, another one I have on the list, too, is... I don't know how how many people would agree with this, but I think the people that are in your game, you know, like uh, you, you could be with a, one group of people, another group of people, a third group of people. The people that you're playing the game with certainly affect how fun the game is. Like, we've, we've played Magic tournaments at Gen Con, and you Gosh. run into some really annoying people. You know, they're just... I, I don't want to get into, like personal attacks or anything but there's some some games are more fun than others based on you know how friendly people are you know are they gracious at winning are they gracious at losing you know is there like just basic manners things like that when you're with your friends playing you know you get along with all your friends so it's usually not a problem there but i think the the group that you're playing with is certainly a factor so i actually had this on my list too Mm-hmm. And I thought it was going to be a unique one, because this has nothing to do with the game itself. With the game itself, right? It, and and honestly, this is almost the most important thing, mm-hmm. in my opinion, because we could play war. And I think if if you and I played war right now, I think we would still have fun, <laughs> probably. But you know, it, but there's some people that that would not be fun at all, right? Well, some of the role playing games, the D and D and GURPS games that we've had. There's been a couple people in there that they're they're so annoying that other people have quit, right? You know, and they they just won't play with this person in, or they won't play, they won't start a new campaign if person X Y Z is there. And it's not that they're being mean to that person; they just know that they're personally not going to enjoy the game if this other person is there. So to deny that that's there is not it's not being realistic. It's it's certainly a part of it. Yeah, and you know. I don't want to alienate anyone listening right now. Right. And, you know, we're making kind of broad sweeping general statements, but I want to go back to what you said about magic. So hopefully everyone listening understands what we, what we mean when we talk about these players at, that we play magic with, you know, it's, there's a certain, uh, is it archetype? Is that the word? Archetype is a good word. There's a certain archetype of gamer that I have absolutely no fun playing a game with. Okay. Let's describe this personality type. Okay, so first of all, complete alpha nerd. Now, when I say alpha nerd, I'm <laughs> how do I how do I explain this? It's like so for a magic player and specifically, they're the guys that will if you're like playing a game with your like a casual game with someone, they'll sneak up behind you and and they'll comment on everything you do. Like, "Oh my gosh, why did you do that? Why did you put that in your deck? Oh my gosh, this deck is horrible." And and they have like no no filter. Yeah, no filter and no social no, tact, no, no social skills right. at all. Like they don't they don't understand that 
like the things that they're saying. So and, Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. Yeah, and the way they're acting. But Sheldon is even like, he, there's something about him that it, it doesn't. It's, he's likable. Yeah, he's yeah, still likable. Yeah. And the and these guys, they're likable within their own group, I think. But to like the general popul- populace in the world, not so much. Right. And I, I, it's really hard to explain. No, I I understand. You need to have you know just basic social skills sometimes you know you're out there you're playing these in these tournaments and it's tough when you're playing game after game and your opponent is just kind of uh, frustratingly quiet you know doesn't really speak you know when he's making his moves he's not clear about what he's doing if he wins you know maybe there's a little you know attitude the wrong way maybe there's like a sore loser aspect Mm -hmm. as well you just need a little bit of friendly i don't i don't know what the word is just just the standard uh you know <laughs> politeness that you'd expect in society yeah but honestly though there's sometimes like when we were playing magic i'm i'm actually okay with the person who's quiet the whole game cuz i i can be quiet yeah that's true it's not so much that they're the person that's quiet that bothers me it's like the person that will will do their like you I think you kind of hinted this they'll like they'll play their card and they won't explain it right like like I can read your freaking card across the table upside down like what does your card do right. can you please tell me that's what I'm that's what I mean by quiet where there, there's no interaction when there should be interaction yeah you know like if I have a card that's a rare that you might not know and it's going to change the game completely I'm not going to put it down and keep it from you so that you can't read it I'll twist it so you can read it yeah yeah so, and this happened, this is why I don't like, this is one of the reasons I don't like playing Magic at Gen Con. The other reason is because I get beat by 12-year-olds. I think I mentioned this before. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, just, you know, and, and I'm sorry, if you're a Magic player, we're probably not talking about you if you're listening to this. <laughs> yeah, this, this actually isn't a large segment. The last few times we played, I would say greater than 50% of the time, you know, they're personable, likable, and the games were fine. Yeah, I think the time was really bad was when they had the Pro Two pro tour qualifier yeah and like all those people were like playing in in random drafts with us and stuff one thing i'll say though just board gaming the board gaming hobby taking out um ccgs and role playing like i went to the board game geek con last year and the environment there was awesome like everyone there was just just very nice very sociable it was easy to just sit down with total strangers and have fun playing a board game with people. People were coming by to help teach games. Uh, they're they're open open to letting you join them, even if you didn't know them. It's like the the crowd there was very uh, welcoming and, and nice. And I think the like the board game enthusiast culture is like it's like the best culture of any hobby that I've ever been a part of. Hmm. And in that. You know that was evident when I went to a convention that was really just focused on board games only. Right. So I think that clearly the people and the social aspect of the game is is a, a key element. Right. There is one other item I had on here too, and that's player interaction and how some games have player more player interaction than others. And there's different variations of player interactions. Like for example, games with alliances. You know, like. Um, like Risk and Illuminati and even Cyclades, mm-hmm. where you could you could be positioning your pieces. There was the one game we were playing where Dave and I kind of had an alliance along our border so we could focus on other things. 
That that's an aspect of the game that you don't see as much in some of the newer games that I think is is good. It's not a necessary thing, but it does add something to it when you can have alliances. And there's also the idea of cutthroat, cutthroat versus kingmaker. I call it. So cutthroat games are games where there's a clear leader, and you kind of are all subconsciously going after the leader. Hmm. You know, not subconsciously, but maybe it's consciously, but not. You're not gearing your whole turn against the leader, but there's an unspoken agreement among the people who are not the leader that you, if you are going to go after somebody, it's them. You don't go after each other because if you do, you're just going to help the guy who's already way out in head. And right. this has happened in some of our games when Tim's gotten out to a huge lead. You know, uh, I know I've been gone after in some games too. It's it, that's a good thing. I think cutthroat it it helps it helps to keep the game more interesting for everybody rather than have it be a runaway. Kingmaker is different. Kingmaker is a negative aspect to a game that I don't think anybody likes. Even even the person who ends up winning has to have a bad taste in their mouth at the end of the day. That it really came down to a choice by somebody who was not involved in as one of the two potential winners. They chose the winner by a move. And right. it allowed one of two people to win. That's the, the Kingmaker role. Every game it probably has that at some point, but that's a that's a not cool thing for me. Um, the cutthroat is different, though. So, are you saying though that because couldn't any game be a kingmaker game? Because it could be if there's two people that are vying to win the game. Essentially, everyone else is are kingmakers in my mind. It depends. Some games you can't affect each other. Well, right. Yeah. Assuming okay. So yeah. Assuming the game has some level of interaction. Yeah. Like uh, we use um, Alien Frontiers again. There's a little interaction there where we you can go after somebody, but it's hard to be a kingmaker in that game. I mean, you, there might be a, a situation where that happens, but your individual goals are pretty segregated in the sense that there, it's possible, like if we saw Tim was going to win that one game, it's possible we could have stopped him, mm-hmm. but we just didn't notice it. But the, if it was between Tim and somebody else... How are you going to affect the outcome, really? It, it's possible that you might be able to by right. you know maybe going in and taking one of their territories. But you're, you're going way out of your way to do that, and you're for sure guaranteeing that you're not going to win. Right. When you could just let them fight it out. And if they're fighting it out, then that will increase the length of the game for everybody. I don't know, I don't know if you could say that Kingmaker is in every game, but I think when it comes up, it should be avoided. Like You, shouldn't, you should bow out and just let the two leaders figure it out if 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 possible these things kind of go together i think the ganging up on the leader and the kingmaker because in some ways gang going after the leader is being a kingmaker like if you're if you're going after the leader and then the second guy in second wins weren't you a kingmaker well yeah when i say going after the leader if it's clear like they're way ahead we'll use katan as an example because you have the robber and you don't know 100% sure who has the most victory points in that game, but you can get a good idea of who's ahead and and penalize them. I think when you do that, you're doing it for your own self-interest. But also, it, there's an unspoken thing that you don't put the robber on somebody who's losing the game. In some variations of the rules, you, you can't do that if they haven't gotten X victory points yet that are visible. Um, that's good for the game because it helps the game be interesting. It keeps everybody involved. 
<clears throat> I don't think anybody wants the rich to get richer in these games if somebody's doing well and it starts snowballing so you go after them but if there's a first and second place and then you have the robber and you can choose if you place it on the guy in first and it is directly making the second guy win then yeah but that's hard to see that that that, that would be the case because usually people are clustered together and you could win with doing a couple moves on one turn mm-hmm. so I, I think you can be a kingmaker for sure in settlers but when you're going after the leader i think that's different it's it's a different thing and i think i, I want to clarify one thing because there's there's also the person who's intentionally being a kingmaker that's different than the game i think the game allowing for it like so, so an example of that would be there well you mentioned this earlier like someone just not focusing on their own strategy at all, just trying to hose a specific player and making moves just to do that out of spite, right? You know, or just or in Dave's in Dave's case, just <laughs> for no say, reason whatsoever. For no reason whatsoever. Right. Yeah, yeah. So Dave, just just so everybody could hear, he went. He and Ryan were in. We were in a game of Alien Frontiers, and he just constantly went after Ryan like three, four times. Like there really wasn't a reason for it. There, <laughs> he had other options. But he just kept doing it, and I'm not sure why. I think he got last too. That's the that's the problem with what with doing that. Right. When you go after, you know, I have a note under here in this player interaction bullet item that I have about the the attacking attacking in quotes, meaning, you know, in some way you're going after a player. That is not a good mechanic in a game. I think the only time you should do that is if there's a reason to do it. Like if you have an alliance, back to the idea of alliances, and you're you know, you're doing it for your alliance or something that I get. Or if you're doing it because it's a winning strategy. If Dave is taking a resource from you, for example, that he can use, that makes sense. Those are all reasons. But when it's for no reason, what happens is he, he it's a bad strategy. You know, you're not going to win, as evidenced by what he did. And he's making it so you're not going to win. Right. So he's, he's bringing you guys down. All, all it does is help Tim win, essentially. Right. Yeah, it helps you get stuck in, Tim win. Yeah. So, so I agree with that. I think when there's any sort of uh, attacking, I don't know what else to call it, of another player, there should be a reason for it. You know, right. something, some game, re- in-game reason. There is one out-of-game reason that makes sense to me, and I might be in the minority. And that is, if I, if I'm attacked by somebody, even if I don't have a strategic anything to gain by attacking them back, I'm still going to. Right. And it's the reason for that. I don't do it 100% of the time, but I probably do it more than the average person. I I can't enjoy the game until I've gotten revenge on them because right. they went after me in theory for no reason. Like what Dave did to you, for example. I, I wanted to go after him just because he did that and it didn't even involve me. It was it was it just it's like it's like a bully. It's like you want to stand up to a bully right, kind right. of kind of feeling. So that would be my one reason why I would go after somebody in a game when I don't have a good reason to. But I, at least I'm admitting that's not a good strategy. <laughs> but yeah, I've, if, if, if these kinds of things are random or unpredictable, there's the word random again, because I, I would almost say what happened to you was random. I mean, you, you had no way of knowing that that would happen. It was out of your control. There's really no difference from what happened to you and rolling a die and getting a bad roll. Right. So, so that's bad. I think that's that's bad for the game. Yeah, and, and honestly, there was a, a period of time in that game where I wasn't having fun because of that. Well, of course, because it took me completely out of the game. Like, it's so it was so hard to come back from that. Right. Because he took 
I don't know. He took like two or three territories from me, and then he was like stealing stuff. It, it from was me. it was something that you don't see very often. <laughs> I mean, that he, he was coming after you hard, and he really, you know, the funny thing about Dave too. Five minutes after the game, he's probably not even thinking about that. Well, five minutes after the game, he's disappeared somewhere, yeah, so he doesn't have to clean up the right. board because <laughs> he's that guy. <laughs> he's that guy. Um. So, going back to ganging up on the leader too, I think there are some some games where that actually makes the game not as fun. And, and actually, people complain about about this a lot with, some, with some games. Not yeah, just the the gang. They call I don't know. It's usually just referred to as a gang up on the leader problem. Mm-hmm. Where honestly, a perfect game for this is Munchkin. In Munchkin, whoever is winning early in the game is not is not going to win the game. I, I think is that I, a one on one game though? No, Munchkin is a a group game. Okay, but. Because what ends up happening is that person, when they're about to win, everyone just spends all their good cards, and they knock that person down, and then the next person who's going to win usually wins. That's the same with Illuminati. Illuminati is similar, too, where it's obvious who's winning, and everybody can go after them. The games are engineered. Those are both Steve Jackson games. Yeah, they are. (laughs) So they're geared so you can go after the leader and really bring them down. I mean, some games, it's not easy to bring them down. Yeah. Like even Kalis. You know, if somebody's way ahead, you know, there's some things you can do, but not much. If they're if they've got momentum on their side, uh it's hard to stop them. Other than moving the provost, there's not much you can do as far as the gang up thing. In Munchkin and Illuminati, there's more that you can do. So that's an important game mechanic. Some games are geared to you can effectively tear somebody down. And some it's a little more difficult to do. See, I, I don't know if we have the same opinion on this because I feel like if someone's like way ahead in a game, they deserve to win. But maybe it's not as fun for the other people, but I, I think that that person made the right choices at the beginning of the game. They deserve to win. And if the game introduces this false mechanism to balance the game back up, how is that fun for the guy who had the better strategy? That's a really interesting point. So it really depends on how that person got out and had. And to be honest, it also depends on who the person is. I'll use Dave again. If Dave is way out and head, I don't think you're going to be okay with that. And I wouldn't either. Okay. So does he deserve to be that far out? Ignoring all strategy and just building buildings out there? No. No. And honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm going to want to take him down. But I see your point. If somebody's played a good game and they've gone to the end and they're just a couple points away from winning and there's a guy in second and you bring him down and then the other guy wins, that's more like the Kingmaker thing, though. Yeah, maybe. And I think in King of... Not King of Tokyo. In uh, Munchkin, the Munchkin example, that's almost Kingmaker-ish. It, it's, it's when you have so much power that you can make that person not win. That's a Kingmaker thing. Okay. If you just are bringing somebody back a little bit just a little bit to back to the pack that's more like the cutthroat okay so I, I think I, I get it and I think there should always be a little bit like you're saying like there has to be like because it's still strategy it has to be in some way part of your strategy too I think mm-hmm. so in Kalis for example you know one thing you could do is if that person is trying to build up gold, for example, to build a, a some build. Wait, there's a better example in Kalos. In the Dave game, I think it was you and I, I, I asked you to help me buy the provost backward. Right. To If we could 
prevent Dave from doing one thing, I would have probably won that game. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know at the time that that was a kingmaker thing. I, at the time, it was, let's just stop Dave from winning. In hindsight, if I would have had that, I would have beat him. So in Kalis, you can do that. There is a mechanism to do that. But to your point about it not being your goal, like it didn't help you right. to do that. It, but it would have hurt the leader for sure. Well, in some cases, though, you can do both. And I think that's, I like that better, where you're not just messing with the leader, but it also helps you in some way. And my example What's is going example? to be like if Dave needed gold to build an expensive building, so I take gold. I still get gold, but I'm blocking him from getting gold There's too. There's more than one way to get gold, though. Right, but that, but I'm blocking one of the things that could help him, I'm essentially blocking. In some games, it, there aren't more than one way. Like, in Agricola, when when I play a two-player game of Agricola um, with Esther, um, wo- there's only one resource for wood. So if you if you see someone needs to build like fences, you just take the wood. So they they can't get wood. You do that to Esther? Not not really. <laughs> she does it to me though. Well, that, that's okay then. <laughs> but you know you're you can affect them not a ton, but you can you can slow them down mm-hmm. i think and i think i like those types of mechanisms better than just outright like tearing them down yeah it depends on the game because you know i don't really know munchkin that well but it seems like the mechanism is powerful there it is you can bring somebody down you have a handful of cards that essentially people just save right until someone's about to win right and then you're like adding points to the monster so they can't defeat it right so in Kalos, it's a little more difficult. I mean, you can right. block the gold, but, you know, if he needs stone, maybe you can block that. That doesn't necessarily help you, though. It might help you, but... Yeah, I, I think... I think cut, When I say cutthroat, it's it's like cutthroat is, isn't necessary for the game to be fun, but it's a dynamic in a game that I like. So I have two more before we move on. I don't know if wow. you've gone through... Wow, I only have list. one more. Okay, so... One of the ones that I have is the theme of a game. So to me, the theme has to be interesting. There has to be a theme, first of all. Like, I actually don't have fun playing games that have no theme. Like, what's an example? Like, chess. Okay, what's I, another example? Like, a board game that that, uh, um, that? There's games that have theme, but the theme... But they're weak. Yeah, the, the theme doesn't doesn't mix with the mechanics of the game like it doesn't make any any sense it's just there okay you know it's usually referred to as a page like the resistance with merlin yeah although you know you you could kind of feel like in the resistance like you're the actual knights of the the round table yeah um but there's games um that are essentially they're abstract game strategy games with just a theme on top like like one game that i don't know if you've played is uh, kingdom builder you're you're supposedly building a kingdom, but really all you're doing is just placing these buildings down on a on a board, and they try to like put this theme on it. So, to me, the the theme doesn't have to like my favorite theme in a game is a would be a fantasy theme, but I don't need that for the game to be fun. Really, what I need is for the theme to mix well with the mechanics, so that. You can explain almost everything you do in the game by using the theme. So, for example, in Caverna, even though you don't like that game, when you're when you're planting something, you put down a a, a wheat and then it it grows two more wheat. So you can explain that like you're planting your wheat seed and then every every harvest you're harvesting wheat. Right. That makes sense with the theme. Right. Not 
okay, you put down t two a cube and then you add two cubes to it and then later you get to take a cube off. Yeah, but the problem I have with that theme, you don't think of dwarves as farmers. Well, yeah, that, that bugs me. That part's a little weird, but a, like Agricola has the exact same mechanics yeah. and it's really actual farmers and you're just farming. I don't they they put the they threw the dwarf thing in for Caverna. Yeah. But if if it was Agricola, that same exact mechanic is in there of planting the wheat and planting the pumpkin or whatever it is and growing more. Right. So the theme mixing with the mechanics well so that it logically makes sense to me is something that, that makes the game fun. Right. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I think the problem the only issue I have with that item is I don't know a lot of games that we play that don't have that. Like they most of them seem pretty well thematically laid out. I think I, I keep picking on King of Tokyo, calling it a ham sandwich, but I don't know that that theme is that good. You know, I don't I don't feel at any point like I'm a Godzilla or, or you know, I'm not like immersed in that genre. Okay. You know, some of the cards are cute, but some of them are campy and then you know, Tokyo is like this little 6-inch square. Right. I mean, it, it's okay for the mechanic, but I don't. I wouldn't say that you're really immersed in that theme. So I've got a good example of a game that we that we've played, uh, Love Letter. Love Letter isn't. I don't really feel necessarily like the theme goes that well with the mechanisms. It's like the theme is supposed to be that you're trying to get a love letter to the princess, and you're trying to like. Uh, get the letter in the hands of the most influential person in the royal court. Mm -hmm. But when you're playing Love Letter, do you ever feel like no, that's what you're that, doing? That's a great example. You're you're just you're just trying to pick what figure out what cards people have and right. guess them. Right. <laughs> you know. You know, the game is fun because it's short or whatever, but I don't think that it, the theme and the mechanics mix well in that game. I, I agree. That's a good point. I didn't have that as as one of mine and I think that's a good one. One of mine I had was I touched on this before in the social aspect of the game, not necessarily with the people, but with what you're doing socially, like the werewolf and um, you know the all the games, the, the identity games, the resistance, which you're souring on those now, I think. But I, that that's an element of that. Sometimes even just a little bit of that shows itself in other games too, mm -hmm. where. You know, there's there's a social element. Like Battlestar is an example, where Battlestar is very... You're oriented on the board and doing stuff, but there's the identity thing, who's a Cylon. I, li I like when there's non-mechanical aspects of the game like that. I, that's It's entertaining and compelling, and it, it adds to uh, the, like the topic of the night, which is what makes the game fun. Hmm. There's not a lot of that in some of these games. Most of these games are very technical. They're not social. But I do like the ones that are social. I tend to almost gravitate more toward those because they're they're more engaging, to your point about not being engaged in a game. The social element keeps you engaged. Yeah. Even if you lose the game and it's engaging, you're still having fun, and at the end of the night you can say that you enjoyed that game. So... I would put the social aspect in there. Obviously, we have some people in our group that are the opposite, where they don't like that, and that's fine. You know, this is all subjective, but for me, I, I, I kind of like that. So I think an, there's an interesting element, though, to the social aspect of a game. I, I believe that some games that have more randomness have more of a social element. 
the games that are really thinky and strategic sometimes there's almost no social element because you're so uh, engaged in the in the thought process of the game right well like werewolf is not very technical right um, but it, I wouldn't say it's random either like how it, whether or not you're going to win has a lot to do with your deductive reasoning and the, the way you talk to people and your cleverness and trying to trick people like if you you know um, if you're the tanner and things like that there's definitely some luck involved but if you're if everybody's kind of engaged in the game you know uh, winning and losing at the end of the day isn't that random okay but i agree games like like power grid and dominion games like that uh very very low there's really no socialization in those games right um there's not a lot of randomness although there is some randomness because you've got the cards and i would say in power grid the way you bid in there there's a there's an element of luck because you don't know all of a sudden somebody could go after the same thing you want and the price goes way up right and you didn't know they were going to do that so there's there's randomness there but games like that um definitely no social aspect at all but games like I, I guess I was maybe thinking of games like, uh, well, back to Axis and Allies. Like that game has a lot of randomness, but there's a lot of social elements too. Because it's really I, maybe I'm just thinking of dice rolling. Like when you're when you're attacking someone with dice, yeah. that is really like socially engaging. Right, like risk. Too, yeah, same thing. it's yeah. that that is really fun. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of socialization, even though it's it it is pretty much completely random. So I guess I don't think there's a direct correlation, but I guess the games there are some games that are the that are more random, but that makes them more social because it's more of just an interactive experience than a strategy game. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if there's a direct correlation. That might be just a coincidence. Yeah. So my last one that I have on here, and this kind of ties in with theme, but not really. It's it to me it is a completely. Uh, it should be in its own category, which is the components and art in a game. That's not what I thought you were going to say. Okay, well, I'll we'll, we'll okay. hold that thought. So, uh, to me, a game, the better the components and art of a game, the more enjoyable that, that game well, is. Doesn't that go to th- the theming? The, well, the components and art have to mix with the theme. The theme is more the story of the game. The components and art are like the art. Like, like the quality. Like if you're reading a book, the theme would be the actual story. But if there are like pictures in there, that would be the the art, you know, right. to like to just help you with the whole immersive experience of the game. Now, Kalis kind of suffers in this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the board is okay, but the the box is just so bad. Well, not just the board; the the pieces aren't that good. Yeah, the pieces are just cubes, and a lot of these right. Euro games are just cubes. Caverna was great. All every piece mm-hmm. looked like the component that it was. Right. You know, they look like wood or whatever. So, I find this really important. Like, if you're playing a a, a game with cards, like it's great. Like Magic is a good example. The art on those cards is amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, the old old Magic, it was but ugly yeah some of it was bad but now it's like the like this art is amazing like if i had a print of it i would hang it on my wall in some cases right. in my game room not right well the, i mentioned the lord of the rings game when the movies were going on it used movie art for the cards and that really did immerse you in it because mm-hmm. those movies were so hot when they were out and we were all into it and it kind of helped with the, the theme and also it immersed you with like quality art there. right 
So what what did you think I was going to say? I thought you were going to say you didn't like games with lying in that. Oh. You know, you didn't want you when you're put in uncomfortable situations where you have to be dishonest, that affects your enjoyment of the game. Because I know that that's true yeah. for you. But the, I have so much fun on the other side of that, though. Yeah. It's like I love figuring out who's lying, right. but I, I really don't like the part where I'm the person who has to lie. Right. And there's multiple reasons. It's I don't like lying, but I'm also bad at it. <laughs> So I almost always lose when I have to be the person who lies. It seems lies. like you've gotten better, though. Yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Yeah. I think I've just gotten better at fooling you guys. Yeah. Because, you know, it's figuring out... It's almost like I've figured out what things I do that make, like, tip my, my hand mm-hmm. to you guys, and I try not to do those things. It's still hard, though. Yeah. That was my prediction, anyway. So the last one I have, it's sort of a encompasses all of it. And it's after the game, when you look back at the game and you're trying to, like you said, you like games that you're thinking about afterward. It kind of sticks with you. That's kind of what my point is here. Did you have fun? You know, and why did you have fun? In other words, if I lost the game, did I still enjoy the game? A good game to me is a game you can win or lose and still enjoy it. Hmm. You know, and if you if you are enjoying the game and you lose. And you still, even after you lose, you say, you know what, that that was great. I I would I would do that game again. You know that that's a good game there because not everybody, you know, who likes to lose, right? Especially people who are competitive. But there there are times I play some of these games, and after I lose, like that, you know, that I still had fun in that game, and I'm almost surprised that I could lose and still enjoy it. And I think one of the reasons is you ask yourself how much of that was cheesy versus they earned it mm-hmm. and if i feel like they earned it then i'm i i'm okay with it and i have fun and i can move on and then play that game again and you ask yourself why did i win why did i lose like when we play magic a lot when i lose at that game i really i need to know why i need to identify it and if it was because of bad luck and and i and i i'm good with that then i can move on but if it wasn't and i you know i want to get better at the game then games like this same thing if i if i lose i just want to know what happened you know we do this metagaming a lot with one night werewolf you know after the game you know it's like well how did, how did we not know that you know that he was the werewolf and you know we kind of metagame a little bit and once once it like clicks as to what just happened my enjoyment level goes up it's like everything makes sense now and yeah. it doesn't even matter if i lost right I th- that's that's a good game for me. Yeah, and I I love it when you can. It's like you have this post mortem mm-hmm. when the game is yes, over, and you post-mortem. and you go back and you talk about like, oh man, on this one turn when you did that one thing, it totally hosed. I was gonna do this. You can actually go back and like tell the story of what happened. Right. I love that when you can that's, do that with a game. That's the best with identity games because you don't know you can't really talk openly during the game. Right. And then like afterward, you can ask, you know, what were you thinking here? And that that's that's a great thing about those games. Yeah. It's an underrated aspect of postmortem. I like that. Regular, like regular werewolf is the best for that. Mm-hmm. When you, when you just finished a huge game of werewolf and then you can finally go back and just tell everyone everything that you were thinking and what was going on the whole game. That's right. really fun. It is. It's, it's a perfect example. Well, those are, those are all the things I had. Yep. Yeah. I think we, uh, we covered most of it. And again, you know, we'd ask anybody listening to, We'll, we'll give our email out and uh, out of game podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, well, you have it memorized. Good job. 
<laughs> usually I have that piece of paper with you know, all the information. Right. Um, but yeah, send us, you know, what you think of all this, and if we we we'll read it, we'll we'll talk about any feedback that we get because you know these are just our opinions and we're talking about them. Everybody has different things that they enjoy about these games, and sometimes maybe something annoys you that we didn't pick up on, and you know you might have some opinions on the random. You know, that always seems to get people going. Right. You know, somebody makes a declaration, I hate dice games, anything with dice. You know, and if I say that I don't like lots of randomness, then people like kind of look over like, well, what do you mean? Are you are you talking about my game? You know, <laughs> is, is this, do, you, do you count this as random? And, you know, yeah, that I do. You know, some games are, are definitely more random than others, and that's okay, but they're not for everybody. So now that we've kind of defined our the things that make a game fun to us. I One thing I was thinking was that when we're doing reviews of games, we should maybe touch on some of these things from our list to, to say, you know, whether, whether the game we're reviewing hits on those, those elements that we've declared make a game fun. Right. Well, there's one sub item that I was going to circle back to, and that was tactics versus strategy. And we've talked about this offline where some games are more heavily with strategy and some with tactics. And I actually have the definitions written down here because people use these terms interchangeably when they're really completely different. So tactics is more of a short term, whereas strategy is more long term. Right. And I have the definition I got for these. Ta the strict definition of tactics is a plan or procedure for promoting a desired end or result. Whereas strategy is a high-level plan to achieve one or more goals under conditions of uncertainty. And then a side note, strategy is important because the resources available to achieve these goals are usually limited. Mm -hmm. So strategy is the high-level, long-term view. And I have some games written down that represent strategy and some that represent tactics. Str games of strategy would be for like the perfectionists and people who are very attentive to detail. Um, like uh, like uh, Power Grid, Dominion, and a lot of these uh, the the worker placement games where you need this end goal because what you can do is think long term. You're not just thinking one or two turns ahead. You're thinking grand strategy. This is what I'm going to do. So why one of the reasons Tim wins a lot of these games is because he has that mind. Um, it's very detail oriented and uh, organized. Mm -hmm. It's very organized with his thoughts. I am horrible at games like this. You know, there's other games I'm uh, I'm not afraid to admit that I, I'm good at, not these games. Games like Power Grid, Dominion, any game that involves any organization or attention to detail or thinking way out into the future like that, it gives me anxiety. And I just, I enjoy playing some of them, but I'm not good at these games. Um, that's the difference between strategy and tactics. Tactics is more... Uh, like magic, short term. You know, what's on the board right now? What are the cards in my hand? What am I going to do in this situation? You draw a new card, he draws a new card, and the, the board changes a little bit. Now you have a completely different tactic. It's right. not really a strategy. A strategy would be a long-term goal of, I'm going to build... Um, I'm going to build uh, like a weenie deck or I'm going to build like a, a heavy pestilence deck or something like that. That's like a strategy. But the tactic end is how you play the game on the fly, booster draft, sealed deck. You, you have to constantly change your plan. Right. And that's that's really the difference. Warlight is, is one. Cyclades. I think Cyclades is a tactic game because the board keeps changing. You don't know 
you can make a long-term plan in that game. You can, once it starts getting toward the end, you can make that, that end goal and then jump on it and win. But you really can't make a strategic goal in Cyclades. That's one of the reasons I like Cyclades. Right. Because it's very tactic oriented. So I'm, uh, I'm, I personally also prefer games that are more tactical than strategic. I think Alien Frontiers is very tactical. Yes, agreed. You know, you you roll and then you have to decide what you're doing. And I think I mentioned this when we when we did our top tens, but it's actually something I'm 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 good at. I think so. Like just trying to make the best of what whatever you have. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I like that game so much. But back to Magic, though, I think Magic has more strategy than a lot of other games. It if depends you, on the kind, like if you do Constructed. Right, Constructed is what yeah. I was thinking. Because you build a deck, there's definitely a long-term strategy Absolutely. in your mind. Like, this is how this deck works. Yeah, that's why I don't like Constructed as much as Sealed or right. Booster. <laughs> that's true. Okay. Yeah, and I, I'm bad at that. I can't, I'm not good at building decks in Magic. Yeah. And, and I'm not good at doing like the the seal decks either though because i think you have deck building skill but you just don't like doing it but you can do it on like a in a in a, a sealed deck yeah i never like figured out the skill of building a good deck yeah we might not have played long enough though for you to figure that out. we were only playing once a month yeah but i was like playing at work and you know i still spent time trying to do it yeah but weren't you playing with guys that just went out and bought really powerful cards no there were maybe one or two guys that did that but for the most part no yeah. it, it was just people building decks from the cards they had and they were way better at it than i was yeah. uh so so are you saying for you personally a more tactical game is more fun yes so that's why i like alien frontiers too yeah we both like that game and i think the reason is because it's very tactical you're always you're always having to change your strategy in that game. You're, you're adapting to what's going on rather than focusing on some long-term goal. Right. Kalos, which we're going to do our review in a minute, that's a very strategic game. And the only reason I win a lot at this game is luck, and I play that iPad game a billion times. Right. So I, I'm really familiar with it. But I'm really not that good at games like this. So what would you say chess is? Chess is very strategic extremely strategic. That's why I'm not good at it, but I'm good at speed chess. Speed chess is very tactical. When you're when you're with the timer, you've got only a certain amount of time to make your move. You have to you have to hurry up and, and decide what you're doing based on short term. You know, it's a very snapshot. It's snapshot. Clock is ticking go. If you don't have that clock, then you're thinking way ahead. You're thinking several moves if i do this then he has these options if okay. i do this then you and there's like this binary tree of all these things that's why they take m minutes and sometimes hours making a move that drives me crazy because i can't i can't do that with my brain i don't have enough neurons firing to keep up with all that <laughs> i like the timer because it keeps things moving and it lowers the bar it right. makes more room for mistakes I would probably like actually now that you mention it, you're you're making me want to try speed chess. Speed chess, a fun maybe game. not against you, but against like a, a normal person that hasn't <laughs> played speed chess a lot, because I play chess, even regular chess. I play it very tactical. I can only think the only thing I can think is all right. I'm going to move my piece here, and I don't think anything can kill that piece, so I'm just going to do it, and and I just move it there. <laughs> and, and it's like you know, and maybe I'm trying to set up like one move ahead, but right. I cannot like visualize the board and. And and honestly, what bugs me about chess is the only reason people know how to 
to do really well at chess is because they study like strategy about it. Like people's moves and yeah. combinations. Yeah, they they like memorize I know. like certain board states and right. Who does that? Like I know. Like t- have you ever played Ticket to Ride? No. Like I think I mentioned this before. There's people that you're you're building like these train routes across the United States, right? And there's a there's a deck of I don't know twenty or thirty routes you could do. And when I play this game with people, you know, I just you get like the routes that you're trying to build, and then you just try to build them. That that's what you do. Well, Esther and I went to Origins and we played Ticket to Ride, and and the only games we could get in get in of Ticket to Ride were like these tournament qualifiers. So we played this game with these two guys that were apparently Ticket to Ride experts, <laughs> and. They had. How do you become an expert? At this? this is how I'm telling you how right now. Okay. You memorize every single route. All right. So they have every single route card memorized. At the beginning of the game, you draw three routes and you keep two. All right. So it's it's supposed to be random, like which routes you have, and the routes are worth different amounts of points. Well, they have every route memorized. So what they do is they just build their trains where they know all the routes are, and then they just draw a bunch of route cards and score points. It, it totally ruined, it ruins the, ruined game. the game for us. I mean, I, I thought I was doing well in the game because I was like kind of in the lead and I had some good routes in my hand. But then I like suddenly this guy is getting like every turn, getting a route, putting it down, getting a route, putting it down. And, it, and at the end of the game, he like almost doubled our scores. That's no fun. Yeah, totally ruined the game. Yeah, I also have a problem with people who look up magic strategies online and just duplicate them. Yeah, but that's that could be someone like me though. I know, but it <laughs> it it I don't lose a lot at that game, but if I play somebody who does that, I, I wanna try so much harder to beat them because they couldn't come up with their own strategy. They're basically copying what somebody else did. I, I don't respect it. Yeah. I think one of the things about collectible card games like this is what you do is, you know, you you build a deck around a theme and you come up with your own ideas and then if whether it wins or loses you kind of ride that success and then maybe tweak it some more and go along you don't go online to a deck somebody built and then just copy it it just doesn't seem like that would be rewarding to win that way right i i don't i don't understand doing that for casual play i understand why people do it for tournaments so that's what i mean i'm i'm mostly talking about casual i whatever in the tournament okay <laughs> so i used to go online i wouldn't i wouldn't copy decks but i would read strategy articles to try to help my brain understand how to like build decks and stuff mm-hmm. i don't think that's what you're talking about I think right no 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 that's not what i mean yeah like uh, i went to a tournament once this was a long time ago and this was an all-day magic tournament i was in it was a sealed deck tournament but it was it was like sanctioned and it took like two hours to like record your decks and everything and I made it all the way to the seat one, the very end. And it was me versus this guy who didn't show up. His seat was empty, and I won by forfeit. Okay. And so it, that was the second to the last round. And then the guy in seat number two, that they had their game going on for, it went on for like an hour or whatever, and then one of the guys won. And the way that Wizards tallied the points was that they ended up with more points than me because because my guy forfeited and so I got less points and he forfeited because he was cheating it turns out oh my God. so that's why and he left like he like fled or whatever <laughs> fled the um, scene yeah so so even though I was in seat number one and, I just, sorry I just pictured this like this fat guy with a neck beard like running out of the magic hall <laughs> with cards falling right. out of his pockets <laughs> yeah 
but I ended up with less points than than the other guy, and so they were declare. I I didn't mean it was the second last run. It was the it was the end, and so they declared this other guy the winner, and I I just I had a problem. I uh, you know wait, I was on chair one, and I won my game. You know I shouldn't come in second place. I spent all day here. My friends were like bringing me food and drink because I couldn't leave because I was in in these tournament these these games. And so they had to bring in like a like a bunch of these uh, judges to figure they they were split as to what to do. Well, this this guy has more points. Well, but this guy was in chair number one and he technically won his game. And so I I looked the the they were siding toward the other guy. Yeah. And so I looked at the other guy and I said, let's let's end this single game, my deck versus your deck. Let's play for it. And he was like, "Oh wait, let's see what the judges say. Let's see what because he was he was going to win," and and I was like, "No, come on! What have you got to lose if your deck is that good? Let's just play." Right. And he, the reason I'm saying this story is because he used a certain theme, theme, even though it was a sealed deck. There are themes you can build based on what cards you end up with, and um, so so what ended when my deck was completely unorthodox and i think in a tournament like this they expect you to follow right. one of the standard themes and i wasn't following and they're it. planning for it and they're planning for it and they were baffled by the whole thing so the judges ended up saying um they they started siding with me now at once this guy refused me then they and he was he was a professional player that somebody sponsored oh, and wow. the guy sponsoring him was going to get the prize the prize which was like 3 booster boxes or something wow and so he had to ask the guy sponsoring him if it, if it was okay to play and he, he was like no no if you if you won you won and so the judges ended up um, they really wanted us to play yeah and if we played then they, they were off the hook so what they did was they each they gave each of us the first place prize oh, and wow. we just we didn't split it in half we each got one whole first place prize but the point is with this idea of you know like copying things like your ticket to ride story you know, some games, there's just no way around it. You know, like Magic, people are going to share their deck ideas. But in a game like Ticket to the Ride, Ticket to Ride, it's a problem with the game because the mechanic is broken. If you can do that, and it goes to a point you made earlier, they, there has to be more than one way to win. Yeah. And it seems like these guys were able to break the game by... By memorizing cards. Yeah. And that's cheesy. Hello! It is King Arthur, and these are my knights of the round table. Whose castle is this? This is the castle of my master, Guidel Go and tell your master that we have been charged by God with a sacred quest. If he will give us food and shelter for the night, he can join us in our quest for the Holy Grail. Well, I'll ask him, but I don't think he'll be very keen. Uh, he's already got one, you see? What? He says they've already got one. Are you sure he's got one? Oh, yes, it's very nice. Uh, I told him we already got one. <laughs> so we're going to review the game Kalos, which, as I mentioned before, is in both of our top ten lists. I don't remember where it was on yours. I think it was seven or something. Yeah. Um, I don't remember where it is on mine. But, you know, out of thousands of games that are in the world, uh, this is in both of our top tens. And it deserves to be. So just a quick overview of what you do in this game. Uh, essentially, it's a worker placement game, and you have a number of pawns. And one thing that's unique about this versus other worker placement games is if 
if you're going to place a worker, you have to pay a gold or whatever the money is called in this game. So you pay a gold and you put a worker down. And you have a lot of workers. I think you have six workers uh, to start with. Uh, and when you start the game, there's some buildings that are out on the board. And they're just standard buildings that are you know, painted on the board. So those are always the same in every game. And you use those at the beginning. But every every turn, you have the option of building more buildings. So there's the there's the buildings that are already on the board, and then there's six random buildings that you put out that are tiles. And then you have the option of purchasing and placing more buildings. And each of these buildings give you basically better and better actions that you can use. You start with wood buildings, you move on to stone buildings, uh, and the actions get better as the game progresses. Right, and these random ones that you mentioned, it goes to the point we made earlier, like the Catan thing, where it's different every time. So these are not the same right? from game to game, these random ones. It looks like there's six. There's six of those you place, and then, like you said, you start buying them. Right, and sometimes, I mean, there's only, I think there's eight or nine tiles you choose from for those six random ones, but... You could you could be missing like a, a key building to build you know some specific resource and because of that it's limiting everyone in the game and so there's always a shortage of that resource right. until later. It when kind it, of prevents the ticket to ride problem. It does in a way because you can't count on there being stone, for example. Right. So you're building these buildings and then if you own a building and someone else uses your building, they have to pay you a gold. No, sorry, you get a point. point. You get a victory point every time someone uses your own building. And one thing that is... Um, we, we always talk about this thing called the provost, so let me explain how the provost works now. So you're building these buildings down a road, all right? And near the end of the road, which is going to be near the near where the the most recent building was built, which most times is the most powerful building, is this little pawn piece called the provost, which is just this little white disc. Alright. When you when you put your workers on buildings in this game, you don't immediately take the action. You put your worker on the building and everyone goes around placing workers one at a time until everyone passes. And then you go down the road and you resolve the actions in order down the road. The order is important. Right. So you could get wood on an early an earlier building, and then as you get further down the road, you might use that wood to build a wood building, for right. example. Right, and we've had it where you go out of order accidentally. Right. That happens. We don't have rubies in this game. Right, there's, there's no rubies. So what happens with the provost is any buildings that are that are past where the provost is, those actions don't resolve. So if you place your pawn on a building right next to the, right by the provost and then someone will have the option of moving the provost down the road or I guess in this case up the road they'll move the, the provost up the road so that you are now past the provost on the road and when that happens your pawns that were on those buildings past the provost don't resolve so you essentially had wasted actions right wasted actions which really can hurt you. And the thing with the provost, the provost is always hanging out in the very edge as this road is going along. We obviously can't show you the board, but the way the board is laid out, the game moves along as the provost moves down the road until he finally reaches the end. And when these buildings are coming up, it's coming up on the cutting edge near the provost as he he's moving down this road. So there's an element of risk that's built in. You know that it's risky 
to place your workers near the provost. Right. You're, you're, you're gambling, in a sense. Right, and everyone has the option of moving the provost on their turn. As long, so here's how the provost moves. First of all, there's a space, one of those spaces I mentioned that is actually uh, painted onto the board, where you can put your pawn on that space, and when it and when that space resolves, you can move the provost forward or backwards on the road up to three spaces. So let's say you were the guy who placed your your pawn near the provost. You might want to take that space to move the provost further down the road, so there's less of a chance of him getting moved back up the road and you not getting your action. But on the flip side, if if I see Dave put his guy on the end of the road by the provost, I'm going to take that space and move the provost up the road three spaces so that Dave doesn't get his action. Right. And and this is where you know where Chris was talking about. There's some randomness uh, in how what he describes as randomness because you don't know if another player is going to do that to you or not. Right. The thing is, if you're placing, and this is one of the things I've learned as we played more games of these. You, you kind of know that you're playing risky when you put your guys there. And so you have to be respectful of the provost. Right. If you start disrespecting it and you're you're taking the best spots, like some of these spots at the end are like two stone instead of one. And some of them are like two stone and a wood, for example, or two stone and two food. Right. They're really good. I mean, they're, they're the resources you really want. You're like, man, I'm going to place my worker there. So you do. You're right on. You're right near the provost. It's easy for somebody to completely screw your strategy and move the provost back. You just have to respect it. If you put more than one guy there, and that was one of the things Dave did in the last game we played. He he was doing it like two guys near it, and we weren't moving it back because we were kind of thinking for ourselves. Right. Just you know that that's to my point about the randomness. You know, if we were to to go against him instead of thinking for ourselves. You know, because think of it, you're not really helping yourself if right. you screw Dave, if right. you move the provost back. So you're taking a gold and you're spending a gold to place your guy there and you're not getting anything out of it, but you're helping everybody but Dave by screwing Dave's turn. He doesn't know whether or not we're going to do that. Right. So that's where the the game of chance comes in is he's kind of rolling the dice, gambling. And there, were, there are sometimes he'll place his worker on the provost's spot to protect himself. And I think that's the way you have to play it. If you're going to take the chance, you got to respect the provost and take up a turn putting your worker there. Right. So just to explain a little more um, about the game itself, so why are you taking these spaces? So you're pretty much trying to get the main three resources in the game, or maybe there's four, which are cloth, wood, stone, and food. There is another resource called gold which you could use as a wild or gold is just worth more points at the end of the game in and of itself and also use gold to build the 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 buildings that give you the most points or you have to actually use gold i think the money itself is called denarii or something i don't yeah. know i always call it call it gold but that would be confusing for this game so you're taking these resources and you're either using them to build buildings and the buildings are all worth points, so just building a building gives you points, but it also gives you more actions that everyone can take. And I mentioned before, someone uses your building, you get a point. Or you're trading in batches of goods to build the castle, which is actually the theme of this game, is building is building this, this castle. You know, you're all kind of working to, to build this castle for the king. So you trade in a, a batch of three 
resources that has to include a wood and then two other unequal resources. So, or sorry, it has to include a food and two other resources, like a food of wood and a stone, or a food of wood and a cloth, etc. It can't be like food, wood, wood. So, you you trade that in and uh, you take an action to build a, a section of the castle, and there's basically three, I would call them stages of the game, which represent the three stages of the castle being built. Uh, what it, This first section I think is called the dungeon, then you build the walls, and then you build the tower. I think that's what they're called. And so you're trying to build, what you want to do is you'll get points if you are on a, on a specific turn, if you're the person who built the most sections of the castle on that turn, then you get what's called a royal favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the royal favor is adaptable. There's four different types of favors, and you can choose the kind you want. And, you know, victory points is one type, uh, coins is another type, and then resources. And then the last type is um, cost reductions on building buildings. So essentially, thematically, and this is a game where I think, I kind of joked about this in your top 10, but I actually do think the theme fits well in this game. Uh, Because you're building sections of the castle, and because you're doing that more than anyone, you're getting a royal favor. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Right. And it's easy to explain that. And then these, these favors give you, you know, some nice advantages in the game. And you're kind of moving up these tracks on this little royal favor track with these four things Chris mentioned. And it gets better and better the further you move up the track. So like the victory points track, the first time you go up the track, you just get one. But then the next time, two, three, four, five. And the gold works the same way. Then the resources, you know, the further you get up, like the first time you do it, you get uh, a food. But then the next time you get a wood or a stone or... If you want to get a food instead, you can still go back and get the food. And then once you get to the very end of, the, of that track, you, you can just take any resource you want because you've already moved up that entire track and unlocked all of those different resources. Right, so the king's favor is definitely a part of the game to pay attention to because it, it directly and indirectly helps you get victory points. Right. So there is actually another space on the board, too, that's uh, unrelated to building the castle which is just to get a royal favor. So one strategy that I've done in games is just trying to get a lot of royal favors. That That's, I think, a, a good strategy in this game. Now, so, so to summarize the way the game plays, you're basically, you're, you're trying to earn points through either building buildings or building the sections of the castle, uh, which are going to give you points in doing these favors that give you points, these are all the things that give you points. And at the end, you can even trade in goods for points and gold for points and your money for points. So there's a lot of different things that give you points, which means that there are multiple strategies in this game, which is one of the things that I think make it a fun game. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the Dave strategy. Yeah, so that, that goes to your point. He won, well, I still think it was a, a subconscious kingmaker move. It wasn't like he dominated that game, but he won the game by not building the castle. He just right. he completely won by just building buildings, individual buildings, getting victory points whenever somebody placed, and the victory points for building the building itself. 
and that was it. That's all he did. Yeah, and you know, not building in the castle, you actually do get penalized for not building sections of the castle. But he he went ahead and ignored it anyways. Right. And all he did was build buildings. I think the reason that he won, though, one of the reasons is because no one else was doing that. We were all competing over the castle, and then Dave is just building buildings at will. And and well, he had a couple risky provost moves too that we let him slide on. Yeah, and th- those are the best places to go. I mean, the, that's the the sweet spot. He was getting the gold nuggets mm-hmm. from those, and we didn't we didn't penalize him for that. But he he showed it an interesting thing, and that is that you can win without building the castle. Right, and. You know, you do get points at the end of each stage for having the most um, overall in that section, and those give you uh, basically you get uh, extra royal favors for that, which you know can lead to points. So, okay, so gameplay aside, let's just let's discuss some of the other elements that um, we were talking about that make this game fun. So, what are some what are some of the things about this game that you think make it a fun game? My favorite thing about this game is that it does have a strategic element and a tactical element to talk about those two things. So it can appeal to both ways of playing. The tactical, it's a little more strategic, I think, but the tactical element is that you have to you have to adapt a little bit on mm-hmm. the fly. Like if you're denied a resource or two and you're not able to go the route that you're planning, there are other things you can do in order to uh, get your victory points. I also like that you can see everything. Like I can see what everybody's doing, as opposed to a game like um, like Seven Wonders, where you know the one difference between worker placement and booster draft is you can't see what people are doing with their turn. I don't know what card you're picking before you pass me the cards, even though we're all picking from the same deck, just like we're all placing on the same board. I don't know what you're doing with this. I like that I can see that. I, it, getting the bird's eye view and just looking at the, the the board as a whole and seeing it rather than focusing in on only a specific thing I, I like that part of it I also like the that you can see where people are victory point wise there's a track around this edge of the board where as you get victory points you move your piece down the track so you can see who's in head that allows you to have a little bit of a cutthroat nature to the game where if somebody's jumping out way in head you can maybe do something about it or at the very least they know that they're exposed sometimes all you have to do is say whoa Tim's way out in head we have to watch him and then all of a sudden he stops placing his guys in the risky area right. which doesn't hurt his gameplay but it stops his momentum a little bit that was one of the things that Dave that he, that he was out in head and he just kept doing risky things but I like that element of this game those are probably you know that I like the tactical element and I like that you can see everything everything is there and there's no dice in this game right I mentioned one thing that I like about a game is the level of engagement. When I'm playing Kalis, I'm fully engaged in the game from beginning to end. Now, that's one of the reasons. Sorry to interrupt. One of the reasons is it's people take quick turns. Yeah, you you don't. I mean, sometimes we, you know, we give a hard time when somebody's taking too long. But that's if they're taking thirty seconds instead right. of five. <laughs> right, because there is like like Chris said. Um, there are some strategic decisions you need to make and there's sometimes you're crunching math in your head and you're looking at your resources to, and you have to picture all the things that are going to happen on the road and make sure your things are in the right order. So there, there are things that make you analyze the game, 
So someone's turned my take 30 to 45 seconds mm-hmm. to place one of their pawns. But honestly, like while like while Chris is doing that, I'm, I'm looking at my stuff and f- trying to figure out where I'm going to place my thing on my turn, which is going to be coming up in within a minute because you're just placing one pawn at a time and going in a circle. So your turns come very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I'm I'm completely engaged in this game every time I'm playing it. That, that's a great point. I think the level of engagement this game with this game might be the best aspect of it, and it's also uh, one of the things we liked about Alien Frontiers too. Mm-hmm. The level of engagement in that game, is, and for the same reason, it doesn't take too long to make your turn and move move it right along. One one other thing that I I like about this game that I've not seen in a lot of other games is you can control the pace of the game. So you could, for example, uh, we didn't explain this, but basically the provost is in a certain spot on the end of the road. If he's past this other pawn, um, what's that that stupid guy called? We'll just call him the bigger white peg. If, if If the provost is past that guy, then you move that thing forward too. So basically, this thing is is telling you when the game is going to end. Yeah, as you're going along the path, it, the path is basically a series of squares that are winding. As you're going along that path, you can decide based on what you do with your turn uh, regarding the provost. You could make it so that you take two steps on the path or one. Right. You're always going to take one minimum, but you can make it go faster by making it two squares at a time. If you have a huge lead, you can accelerate the game that way. Likewise, you can slow the game down if there's somebody way out in the head. Right. You know, the, the the people that are behind can kind of work together to slow the game down a little bit. Yep, and that the so this guy's called the bailiff. I just looked in the, in the rules. So if the provost is past the bailiff at the end of the round, you move the bailiff forward two. If he's equal with it or behind it, you only move it forward one. Yeah, one minimum. And the provost, I mentioned there's a space to move it, but every round, everyone has the option of paying up to $3 to move the provost forward or backwards three spaces. You get that option every single turn. Right. So you could always save a gold and try to keep moving it to either slow the game down or, or speed the game up right. based on your strategy. Yeah, and it is an interesting element to this game, but it's one that we never really use. If you notice... A lot of times, whoever's in the lead doesn't do that, and I think it's because they either forget or they underestimate how big of a deal that is. Yeah, they but don't. I don't think. There. In my case, I never, I never think to plan right. for that because I'm, I'm using my money for, for my moves. Right. And money is kind of hard to get in this. It game. is three, three coins, is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to spend three coins in your turn moving the provost. It's got to be for a really good reason. Right. One thing I don't necessarily like about this game is probably. The components. I mean, they're fine. They're they're standard Euro Euro game components with the cubes and the pegs, and you know you have like the settlers at Catan houses that you use for your buildings. Um, the board art itself isn't isn't bad. I mean, it's okay. The board is okay. It's better than anything I could I could draw or yeah. paint. Uh, so it's fine. It's just not outstanding. Right. It could be better, but it's good enough. I I, I don't have a problem with the board. My my worst criticism of this game is it doesn't have a lot of randomness to it, it's why I like it, but the, the randomness that's there is devastating like it, it doesn't happen a lot but that one time that you happen to be screwed by somebody that you were not expecting, it's devastating to your strategy and if in a four player game 
you can't afford to have things like that happen if the other players are you know they're good and they're doing their job then it's it's going to really set you back that's that's really my own like after the game is over i like asking myself and i mentioned this before you know why did i lose you know why why did so and so win did they deserve it not and if if i can like check all those off then i enjoyed the game sometimes with this game it's a little questionable but it's it's got a higher ratio than most games of being satisfying in that sense so i think overall um my kind of overall opinion of this game i think what makes this game great to me is i feel like this game is very elegant and i've mentioned this for a couple of other games but there's nothing in this game that seems like fluff like every every rule i feel like the game is very streamlined and everything works together very well it's all very balanced right and at the end of the game if you win you feel like you earned it right right there's not a, there's not a broken strategy and there's multiple ways to win yeah it's like an hour and a half i think this game takes about an hour and a half to play which for me is like my sweet spot pretty for good. a game an hour to an hour and a half it's an elegant i would say almost perfect game like this game deserves to be played if you're into board games into this hobby you you owe it to yourself to at least try this game because when you look at the box i'm just going to tell you when you look at the box it's going to turn you off you're like this game looks ridiculous it has a picture of a king who kind of looks like an ugly queen on the front (laughs) okay and it just it doesn't look like much but I promise you, if you if you like Euro games, you you sh- you you will like this game. Don't let the rapper fool you. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a good game. <laughs> Ryan's right. It's you have to try it. If you haven't tried it, it's it's one of the better games by far out there, and it stands the test of time. We've played this game a lot. We haven't gotten tired of it yet. Yeah, this is probably one of my most played games that I own because we play it a lot in our in our group, our game group. Do you? Well, our group. I mean, our group. I mean, we play this game multiple times a year as compared to... Yeah, that's true. Like, other games, other Euro games, we don't play as much as this. This is by far the one we play the yeah, most. Yeah, we come back to this a lot. Yeah. So, that's our review of Kalis. Uh, you know, I think this game is still in print. I, I forgot to check this beforehand. But if you can get your hands on a copy of this, to even to just play it, uh, I would highly suggest giving it a try. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think that wraps up episode three. Yeah, that's a wrap. It's interesting stuff. So, Chris, you have no notes in front of you. Uh, what's our Twitter feed? At OOG Podcast. Nice. Good memory. You can also find us on Facebook at OOG Podcast or just by searching out a game. It's kind of weird finding stuff on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, one thing, if you if you listen to this on iTunes or if you could just do us a favor... Do us a solid. Go out to iTunes and rate us, because like we said, we want street cred. Yeah, it helps. All that, every little thing helps. And uh, and go on the Board Game Geek uh, Guild too on the forums. Just going to give a shout out to our our fan Bonnie, who has consistently provided us feedback. I appreciate you uh, giving us the feedback every time. And you know, I know that some of our friends and stuff have been listening, so. We, we really we want to improve the show but it's hard for us to know how to you know unless we get feedback so if you have time 
Yeah, not only do we listen to all feedback, we do incorporate it. It means a lot. If somebody's going to take the time and give us an opinion or a suggestion, we're not going to ignore that. We're, we're going to read it and incorporate it. For right. sure. And, you know, we, we appreciate you guys listening. And hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Let us know what you thought. And we will see you next time. See you next time. Good night. <laughs>